0: Welcome to Dire Trip, where we deep dive into all sorts of spooky, horrific, or just plain weird crimes, lawsuits, and strange happenings all over the world. Without further ado, let's get into today's story. A man living in a filthy hoarder house, a teen boy reading up on black magic on the internet, a death metal band, and a rebellious wealthy teen all engage in horrific ritualistic crimes. While some of these crimes were sensationalized or flat out just made up all throughout the satanic panic, each case we're looking at today is absolutely real. Azuzu Algorad First off today, we have the story of a filthy, tatted-up, cult-like degenerate who lived out in North Carolina. John Alexander Lawson, born in 1978, was an American man living in Clemens, North Carolina, with his mother in her house. At some point in his life, he changed his name from John to Pazuzu Algarad as a tribute to the Assyrian king of demons mentioned in the film The Exorcist. Considering himself to be a Satanist, he covered himself in tattoos with satanic-looking imagery and even filed his teeth down into spikes. A woman who stayed at Pazuzu's house in 2005 had a crazy experience when he frankly bragged to her about killing and eating two prostitutes. He told this woman that he burned their bodies and buried their remains in a secluded location. She said, Paz told everyone, but I never believed him. I'm sure no one else believed him either. He laughed about the skeletal remains when telling the story on why he did what he did. I never once saw the skeleton bodies. I honestly thought he was lying, now I'm not sure what to believe. Pazuzu wasn't all talk, in fact he had quite the rap sheet. For example, in 2010 he was charged with accessory after the fact when he allowed a murderer to come take refuge in his house and hide from the police. The investigators were pretty angry, saying that Pazuzu both misdirected the police and allowed this man to take refuge in his house and lay low. When the police arrested him, Pazuzu was interviewed by a few different psychiatrists. One of them stated, he admitted that he bathed no more than once a year and had not brushed his teeth in years. He felt such actions stripped the body of its defenses in warding off infection and illness. For that case, Pazuzu was simply released on probation. Another friend who stayed at Pazuzu's home spoke of similar stories. She also heard him bragging about killing prostitutes, but in addition to that, she heard him say that he got a rush, similar to doing drugs, from eating the still-beating heart of an animal sacrifice. Not to mention he stayed naked throughout her entire visit and acted in a manner that she called very sexual, very provocative. The stay at his home wasn't pleasant, to say the least. Not only due to Pazuzu's actions, either, the home itself was horrific. The friend described the house as having feces piled up all over, stating that she even saw Pazuzu urinate in the corner at one point. Pazuzu's behavior grew more and more insane over time. His friends had come out to describe his lifestyle in detail. They had witnessed him cutting both himself and his friends, drinking the blood of dead birds, doing unfathomable amounts of drugs, sacrificing rabbits and satanic rituals, hosting orgies and letting people in his home do absolutely whatever they wanted. Then came October 5th, 2014. The police came out to arrest both Pazuzu Algarad and his 24-year-old girlfriend Amber Birch. This was after the police discovered skeletal remains buried in the couple's backyard. The remains were those of two men, Tommy Welch and Joshua Welzer, both of which had been missing since 2009. It seems that, in July of 2009, Pazuzu shot Joshua and Amanda helped him bury the body in his backyard. Then in October, Amber took her turn and shot Tommy, this time with Pazuzu returning the favor and helping her bury the body. One more friend, Crystal Matlock, was also charged with accessory after the fact of first-degree murder after it was found that she helped Amanda bury Joshua. After arresting the three and taking them into custody, the investigators went into the home to take some video as evidence. They were quick to describe the place as a house of horrors. They filmed a nine and a half minute clip of what was called an uninhabitable residence. The place was encrusted in grime, filthy from the floors to the ceilings, covered in garbage and feces. The icing on the cake was the phrase, evil will triumph, spray painted across the front door along with various other satanic graffiti. The house wasn't only disgusting, it was a safety hazard. There were needles and broken glass all over the place, thousands of bugs and rats both dead and alive, decaying animal parts from sacrifices and cages with dead animals still inside. Not to mention, dried blood was found all over the walls as well. Five weeks later, Crystal Matlock pleaded guilty to conspiracy to accessory after-the-fact to first-degree murder. She was sentenced to a minimum of three years and two months, with a maximum sentence of four years and ten months. In April of 2015, Pazuzu's house was demolished while neighbors rallied around and cheered. Pazuzu Algorad would never go on to face justice. In October of that year, he was found unresponsive in his cell. It was apparent that he had died from a deep wound to one of his arms. It seems that he found a way out of his court date, which was to be the very next day. That very well may have been the end of good old Pazuzu, but things weren't quite over yet for his girlfriend Amber. In 2017, she finally went to trial. There, she pleaded guilty to second degree murder, armed robbery, and accessory after the fact to murder. She got a sentence with a minimum of 30 years and 8 months, with a maximum of 39 years and 2 months. After all of this ended, Pazuzu became the subject of a documentary series called The Devil You Know. Daniel Hussein A 19-year-old boy in Guy Barnet Grove, Eltham in southeast London named Daniel Hussein was getting into some pretty shady things online. His father had growing concerns that his son was falling into a bad crowd after noticing more and more suspicious and concerning behavior. From October of 2017 to May of 2018, Daniel was monitored by a program called Prevent Strategy when he was caught accessing a lot of radical material on school computers when he was only 15. Police searches of his electronic devices found boundless material related to both far-right extremism and Satanism. Daniel was an avid viewer of videos posted by a 40-year-old man in Utah named Matthew Lawrence, also known as EA Coding. He often posted videos online, sold books, and taught courses on how to use black magic and, in his own words, become a living god. One of his books taught the readers how to use human sacrifice to summon demons in order to gain mystical powers. Daniel was very active on a satanic forum that Lawrence hosted, telling other members that he was a psychic vampire. He often asked for advice on how to form packs with demons. He was very active on this forum for over two years, never ceasing to participate in the conversation. Daniel tried his hand at forming a pact with a demon, surrounding himself in candles, wishing to sell his soul for wealth. He followed instructions that he had found either in Matthew Lawrence's books or forums, hoping to finally get rich. Feeling empowered, he went out and spent 162 pounds on some lottery tickets. He didn't win, so it's safe to say that he probably thought he failed the ritual in one way or another. It was now 2020. Daniel was 19, ready to try the ritual all over again. He drew up a handwritten contract in which he made a pact with a demon named Lucifage Ruffakale. In this contract, he promised to murder six women every six months in return for winning the Mega Million Super Jackpot. He signed the contract with his own blood, ready to do whatever it took. Bea Henry was a woman making a living in northwest London as a social worker. She was described by family and friends as a passionate advocate for safeguarding vulnerable children and families. Nicole Smallman was a freelance photographer living in northwest London as well. Both women were the daughters of a woman named Mina Smallman, who was the Church of England's first female archdeacon from a black and minority ethnic background. Bia, Nicole, and their friends were celebrating Bia's birthday by hosting a late picnic in Fryant County Park on the night of June 5th, 2020. Due to lockdown, they were left with no choice but to hold the party outdoors somewhere. Once it got fairly late, all the other guests returned home, aside from the two sisters. They stayed behind to take some photos together, but little did they know they were photographing their last moments on Earth. Daniel Hussein showed up to the park. Seeing two women alone in the early hours of the evening, he thought this would be a prime opportunity to act on his contract. With this, he could finally win the lottery, he thought. Just after 1am, he ran up to the two women, pulled a knife out from his pocket, and started slashing. Daniel ended up stabbing Bia eight times and Nicole 28 times as she tried to fight back and save her sister. Daniel himself suffered a deep cut to his right hand during the fight. Both Bia and Nicole lost their lives right then and there after the savage attack. Daniel then dragged their bodies about 75 meters away into a wooded area, hoping that nobody would ever discover them. Daniel himself had to go get treatment for the wound on his hand. It was so severe that he couldn't even hold anything. He told the doctors that it happened when someone mugged him the previous night. The next night, after nobody had heard from either sister, their family and friends reported them missing. They were told by the police that they would do everything in their power to find the girls, but it seems that the police didn't even look. The bodies were only a short walking distance away from the last place they were seen, but the police claimed they weren't able to find anything even after an extensive search. In the end, it was the sister's family themselves who had to come across the bodies the next day after a short search of the park. Police finally did come out once the bodies were discovered. There they found Daniel's knife abandoned nearby. Using the DNA evidence left behind from when Daniel cut himself, they were able to trace it back to him. Actually, the DNA was linked to his father, given that his father had a run-in with the police at some point in the past. They raided his family home in Blackheath, Southeast London. There they found Daniel's bizarre, demonic contract. The police fully believed that Daniel would have gone on to murder four other women, maybe even that night if not for the wound Nicole had inflicted upon him. Due to that wound, he could no longer hold any sort of weapon. It seems that Nicole inadvertently saved many other lives with her final act. Daniel was arrested and charged with two counts of full-on murder. He attempted to defend himself by telling the police that he had Asperger's syndrome and memory problems. He refused to answer any and all questions. His trial began on June 9, 2021, at Old Bailey. He pled not guilty. The prosecutor, a man named Oliver Glasgow QC, told the jury, Given the weight of the evidence against him, only someone who actually believes that an agreement with a demon will work could refuse to accept any aspect of the case against him. It is hard to imagine that anyone could do to another human being what this defendant did to Bea Nicole, but to have planned it, to have prepared it, and to perform it with such ruthless selfishness is truly terrifying. He did not care what he had to do to get what he wanted, and these two women were nothing more than a means to a very disturbing end. Once news of this arrest came out and the connection to Matthew Lawrence was made clear, all of his videos were swiftly removed from social media. Daniel was convicted of both murders on July 6, 2021. He was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 35 years. The justice told him, You committed these vicious attacks. You did it to kill. You did it for money and a misguided pursuit of power. This was a calculated and deliberate course of conduct, planned and carried out with precision. Bizarre though the pact with the devil may appear to others, this was your belief system, your own commitment to the murder of innocent women. Daniel would become eligible for parole on July 20th, 2055, if he's even still alive. The month after the incident, two police officers, PC Denise Jaffer, 48, and PC Jamie Lewis, 33, were charged with misconduct after they shared frankly fucked up photos of the crime scene with their friends on a WhatsApp group, causing them to leak out. They had gotten down on the ground and taken selfies, smiling next to the dead bodies. After, six more officers were investigated for either failing to report on or failing to challenge that act. Jamie Lewis was fired from the position while Denise Jaffer resigned willingly. The mother of the two victims said, It made me think of the lynchings in the deep south of the USA where you would see smiling faces around a hanging dead body. Those police officers felt so safe, so untouchable that they felt they would take photographs with our murdered daughters. Those police officers dehumanized our children. Mina Smallman has since been working to raise awareness of police misconduct, using the failures in the investigation of her daughters as prime evidence. She felt that the police very likely had decided not to investigate her missing daughters due to racism, which is a claim that's not totally baseless. During the investigation, Jaffer was found to use racist language very often when talking to friends and co-workers. An inquiry into how the police handled the case found that the level of service provided to the family was unacceptable by the police's own standards. An apology was given to the family as a result. Mina Smallman is also concerned that the prison isn't going to do anything more than further radicalize the already radical Daniel as it has done so many others. After this and several other controversies within the police force, the Metropolitan Police Chief, Cressida Dick, was urged to resign. In 2022, he did just that. Ricky Casso Richard Allen "Ricky" Casso Jr., known locally as the Acid King, was living in Northport, New York on June 19, 1984. He was the son of a local high school teacher and football coach at an affluent school called Cold Spring Harbor High School. Despite his affluent lifestyle, Ricky was nothing more than a thug. He was kicked out of his home time and time again as a teenager, usually opting to live on the streets of Northport, usually out in the woods, uh, random garages, people's backyards, cars, or at friends' houses. Ricky was big into drugs, taking anything he could get his hands on. He smoked weed, did hashish, LSD, PCP, mescaline, along with anything and everything else. While he mostly consumed these drugs, he sometimes dealt them to others as well. Doing this, Ricky became part of a loosely organized group of thug weed peddlers in his area who called themselves the Knights of the Black Circle. While it isn't really clear whether or not this group was actually satanic in nature or just a simple goof, it was widely believed to have been at least somewhat based on a teenager's idea of what satanic beliefs would be. With them, Ricky participated in all sorts of occult ceremonies. He celebrated Walpurgis' night at the Amityville Horror House and even bought himself a copy of Anton LaVey's book, The Satanic Bible. After this and a whole lot of drugs, Ricky's family admitted him to the South Oaks Psychiatric Hospital in Amityville, New York, for both rehab and psychiatric care. Ricky soon got out, and shortly afterwards he was arrested for digging up a colonial-era grave at a nearby cemetery. Shortly after, he caught pneumonia and ended up in the hospital. During his stay, his parents begged the staff to commit him. However, the hospital staff concluded that although he exhibited antisocial behavior, he wasn't likely to be a danger to others. He was released shortly after. Ricky had been friends with a 17-year-old kid, Gary Lowers. However, their friendship soured after Gary stole 10 packs of PCP from Ricky's jacket after he passed out at a party. Once he came to, Ricky confronted him. Gary gave back five of the bags, but he had already used the other five. Ricky was furious, but he played it cool at the time. Partially cool, anyway. The two had gotten into fights before, with Ricky even beating Gary up a few times, so nobody thought anything was out of place. This time was different, though. June 19, 1984. Ricky invited Gary out to a gazebo in Cow Harbor Park to come smoke with him and a few friends named Troiano and Quinones. The three took some tablets of LSD, smoked several bags of PCP, and started a campfire using Gary's socks and jacket sleeves. It wasn't too long before Ricky's grudge bubbled up to the surface. Although it isn't clear what led to the escalation, aside from a ton of drugs, Ricky and Gary began to fight. They got into a scuffle, with Ricky biting Gary's throat and eventually stabbing him in the chest. Rather than stop the attack, Triano held Gary down while Quinones simply watched. Ricky ordered Gary to say that he loved Satan and he would stop. Gary refused multiple times, instead only saying, I love my mother. After numerous threats and a continuous beating, Gary finally gave in, professing his love for Satan. By now though, Ricky was far too enraged to stop. He stabbed Gary between 17 and 36 times, even slashing his eyeballs out during the incident. Gary passed away then and there. Ricky and the others dragged Gary's body into some nearby woods, haphazardly covering it with some leaves and small tree branches before fleeing. After the killing, Ricky committed the ultimate criminal mistake by bragging to all of his friends about what he had done. He told them that Satan himself manifested in the form of a jet black crow after the murder, giving Ricky his approval for what he had done. Needless to say, his friends didn't believe him at all. So Ricky made the situation even worse for himself by dragging a few of them out to the woods near the park to see the body. Two weeks later, on the 4th of July, an anonymous tip was sent to the police giving them the location of the body. With cadaver dogs, they soon stumbled upon the grisly scene. Ricky and Troiano were caught and arrested the very next day on July 5th. Ricky, refusing to go to jail, hung himself in his jail cell only two days later. Jimmy Troiano signed a couple of different confessions to the crime that he later recanted. Quinones testified during his own trial that Troiano did indeed help Ricky during the murder, but then later denied that fact at Troiano's trial. Due to the amount of drugs that the two had been on, their testimonies were brought under extreme scrutiny. Troiano was acquitted of second-degree murder in a new trial in April of 1985. This murder has been rumored to have been the case that set off the original satanic panic. Being an actual crime where some seemingly satanic-looking teenagers killed someone, mentioning Satan's name before and after the crime, it was used as a prime example that this fear was justified. Ricky was also seen wearing an ACDC shirt at the time of his arrest, and was a big fan of both Ozzy Osbourne and Black Sabbath, which definitely didn't help things at the time. The Beasts of Satan the Beast of Satan were an admittedly satanic cult slash metal band out in Italy during the late 90s and early 2000s. The main people involved in the group were named Andrea Volpe, Nicola Sapone, Paolo Leone, Mario Macione, Pietro Guerreri, Marco Zampolo, Eros Montoreso, and Elisabetta Ballarin. This cult actually did head in the direction of what you might expect from an actual stereotypical satanic cult. They wanted to take a shot at some human sacrifices. Together, they wrote their plans out in a notebook. Entries in this notebook contain rambling, seemingly nonsensical messages with no context, such as Blood and death, blood raining down, blood bathing all over my body, blood thirsty for blood, and Crush those who are our friends or who would like to be but aren't up to it crush them, then laugh. The book then included instructions on precisely how to conduct satanic rites and both the risks and benefits involved, writing, Madness is always one of the risks. It's necessary to maintain concentration on hatred. The drummer of the band, Andrea Bontade, refused to help the other members to kill anyone. As a result, the other members of the cult pressured him to take his own life. He drank until he was nearly going to black out and purposely crashed his car in order to end himself this would prove to be the first of their heinous acts. In January of 1998, they decided to act on their sick plans for the first time. They decided they would sacrifice Chiara Marino, a 19-year-old shop assistant, and her boyfriend, Fabio Toles, a 16-year-old student and heavy metal musician in a drug-fueled occult ritual. Chiara and Fabio had been spending their Saturday night drinking beer and listening to some music at Midnight Pub, the center of the city's metal scene. The Beast of Satan, who they thought were their friends, surrounded them and forced Fabio to call his father and tell him that he wouldn't come home that night because he was going to sleep over with his girlfriend. His father, though, realizing something was strange, called the pub back and asked to speak to him, but it was too late. They had all left to Soma Lombardo. When getting into a secluded location, the Beast began to stab at the two victims. Fabio, a very large boy for his age, did all he could to fight back against the group and protect his girlfriend, but unfortunately it was not a fair fight. He was soon overpowered and the two were stabbed to death then and there. The cult then partook in a copious amount of drugs and had a blood ritual sacrifice right there on the spot, all while blaring death metal music. Afterwards, they buried the two in a grave out in the woods, dancing on the graves, laughing and screaming, Now you're both zombies. Try to get out of this hole if you dare. The police, though, had come to the conclusion that the two victims had eloped and ran off together. Fabio's father, however, didn't believe it. He knew something was up for sure and started his own investigation. He soon discovered how deeply all of those involved were involved in the occult, feeling that there was a connection between Satanism and their disappearance. He would spend the next six years investigating this series of crimes. The cult wasn't content with these two murders alone. In 2004, Andrea Volpe invited Mariangela Pizzota a 27-year-old shop assistant, to come out to dinner for a friendly chat. However, his intentions were much darker. Mariangela knew about their cult activities. Too much, Andrea felt. When Mariangela came over, Andrea began to fight with her, culminating with Andrea shooting her. Mariangela didn't die there, though. Andrea called up Nicola Saponé for some assistance. This was when they realized that Mariangela was still breathing. In anger at his failure, Nicola shouted, You can't even kill a person, and began to threaten him. They took her out to the greenhouse of one of the cult members' parents' homes. There, to finish her off, they repeatedly hit her several times over the head with a heavy metal spade. However, little did they know, Mariangela was still alive, even after all of that, when they buried her. Andrea and Elisabetta, who was now his fiancée, decided to get high together. They decided to get rid of Mariangela's car by driving it into a nearby river. But being as high as they were, they crashed the car instead. This attracted the police, who arrested them on the spot. Andrea Volpa, upon being arrested, confessed to both this killing and the earlier two, leading the police to the bodies of the first two victims as well. When the third murder occurred, Fabio's father took his findings to the police, who used them to link all three murders to Andrea and the wider satanic cult. This was the first time that they even knew of the cult's existence. Mario Macione, who called himself the medium, confessed to beating Fabio to death with a hammer after Andrea and Nicola had stabbed both him and Chiara. After these three confirmed murders came to light, the cult came to be suspected of 14 other deaths and disappearances that took place during the same area in the same time frame. These other cases were all tied to the group in one way or another, either being friends, enemies, or just simple acquaintances. Christian Friguerio, a former member of the cult, disappeared on November 14, 1996. Andrea Ballarin, a childhood friend of Andrea Volpe, was found hanged in his school on May 7, 1999. Angelo Lombardo, an acquaintance of some of the members of the group, was burned alive in the cemetery he worked at on December 14, 1999. Doriano Mola was found hanging in the woods on December 27, 2000. Luca Colombo, a friend of Nicola Sapone, was also found hanged on May 5th, 2004. Then just a few weeks later, Alberto Scaramuzino was found burned in his car in the woods on May 13th. These cases are only some of the cases that they are suspected of. The cult's involvement in these other crimes has never actually been proven. Some of the cult members, though, have accused other members of having committed these crimes, but these accusations are often denied by other members and no hard evidence has yet to be found. In February of 2005, due to cooperating with both the police and the prosecutors, Andrea and Pietro were sentenced to only 30 and 16 years imprisonment. Andrea's conviction was a whole decade longer than prosecutors recommended, but it was still that short in the end. Marcio had also confessed, but he was cleared due to being a secondary role in the murders. Michele Tolis, the father of Fabio, said, Today, justice rewarded me. However, Lina Marino, the mother of Chiara, said that she couldn't believe the light sentences that Volpe and Guerreri were given, saying, "They are murderers. It's not fair." Five more members of the cult went on trial in June of 2005. In 2006, they were sentenced to much longer terms. Nicola Saponè, believed to be the leader of the group, was hit with a life sentence. Paolo Leone, Marco Zampolo, Eros Montoreso, and Elisabetta Ballerin were all sentenced to between 24 and 26 years for their parts in the crimes. In 2007, attempts to appeal were made, but Nicola's life sentence was upheld and some of the other sentences were actually lengthened. Paolo's 26 years turned into a life sentence. Marco went from 26 years to 29 years. Eros was increased from 24 years to 27 years and 3 months. The only one who got off a little bit easier was Elisabetta, whose sentence was slightly reduced from 24 years and 3 months to 23 years. Elisabetta was released in 2006, now living a free and normal life working at a restaurant in Northern Italy. Andrea Volpe was released from prison fairly recently in 2020 and is now a student studying science of education. These murders were called one of the most shocking crimes in post-war Italy by the BBC. In reaction to the crime, the Italian police stated their intentions to create a special unit focused only on religious cults, namely Satanists and other potentially violent groups. This special unit includes everything from psychologists, to a priest, to occult experts. Once again, this has been your host Kyle. Thank you very much for listening to today's podcast episode. Feel free to look through my huge library of other stories if you found this one interesting, and be sure to be there for the next stories that come out each and every week. Have a good night.